My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a man with 23 years of service to this country. He currently serves as the Deputy Commandant for the United States Army John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and Schools Non-Commissioned Officer Academy. That's located at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. But he began his career as an infantryman in the 25th Infantry Division. He then served in the 3rd Special Forces Group as a Special Forces Weapons Sergeant, Intelligence Sergeant, Team Sergeant, and currently serves as a Special Forces Sergeant Major. Throughout Chuck's military career, he conducted a total of 17 deployments, with 12 deployments being to combat. He has also been recognized multiple times for his service and possesses a Silver Star Medal, a Bronze Star for Valor, an Army Commendation Medal for Valor, three Purple Heart Medals, and numerous other military awards. Now here's where the story gets crazy. He has a passion for recovery and resiliency due to being severely wounded in combat on three combat rotations and has recently undergone his 30th surgery in the past 13 years. In addition to his military career, Chuck is the founder and partner of Lycos Group LLC, a leadership consulting firm based in North Carolina and is a board member for the Talons Reach Foundation. He plans on retiring from the military in 2023 to continue with consulting and helping soldiers realize that being in control of your mental health should be one of the top priorities to make that next chapter after service as memorable as the service itself. Please welcome Charles Chuck Ritter. What's going on, man? Hey, man. Appreciate that. That's, that's an awesome. That's probably the best introduction I've ever had, probably in my entire life. Well, <laughs> thank awesome. you. I, I I strive for that. So, what's going on, man? We we have hooked up a while ago. You've been super busy, but we got you into the studio to talk, and and there's so much to talk about. You know, we talk so much on this podcast about not only the physical aspect, and a lot of people can talk about the combat stories, but, you know, there's more to it that goes into it. And I think as you get older, whether that be in law enforcement, military service, you start realizing that there's a lot more to your service than just that physical characteristic. You feel that physical characteristic and you feel the aches and pains from it but i don't think a lot of people realize the mental strain that it puts on you and i think you would agree and so we have a lot to talk about tonight we need to talk about your career and how it started and as a kid and what kind of brought you into that military service now i know that you came from a military family so let's talk about that all right um yeah so my dad was enlisted my mom was an officer so you know that didn't go very well in, in the 70s and, and I probably took after my dad because some of the stories he tells me he made it up to E9 went back to E6 I think he made it back to E8 um, you know so um, and my, my mom she never made it above being a major because of his antics so um, yeah, I grew up in the Air Force 
Uh, grew up in Texas for the most part. I mean, I was born in the Philippines, but um, I claim Texas as my home because that's where I spent the majority of my my, my young life. So let's talk about your family. Was it a close family? Did they did they back you up? Because everything that I've read, you had a pretty good upbringing. Uh, there was a few bumps in the road, but it was a pretty good upbringing. Is that about yeah, right? I would say I was I was fairly spoiled. Plus, you know, I had four four sisters, um, but they were all gone. So by the time you know, I was growing up, uh, it was like the first time they could actually just kind of dedicate time to one kid. And, and there's some jealousy there because. You know, they spent a lot of money and other, other things on me because they were doing pretty well. So, you know, I grew up pretty spoiled and, and had a lot going for me. And, you know, I kind of screwed that up here and there. And, and the fact that I made it to where I am now is, you know, I don't know, pretty amazing. Um, because I'm sure we're going to get into it. You know, you know the story of how I was, how I was a hooligan and, and probably should be in prison at this point in time. Well, let's go right into that. Let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about how kind of all the things were there to have kind of a, that charm childhood and, and, you know, the focus all be on you, but, but you took it down a wrong turn. Was there anything that you remember that kind of took you down that wrong turn or was it just rebellion or what was it? So I feel like I was always kind of smart, but I'm in really poor grades. And unfortunately my, my son actually found a box for my report cards of the day and found one from the third grade where I failed skipping across the room and you know, saw that I had like 100 days of skip school here and there. And my, my parents spent money for tutoring, for private schools, but for whatever reason, I just did not want to apply myself. So at one point in time, I skipped like 100 days of school. Uh, the, one of the schools I was at, um, you know, did a lot of drugs. I sold drugs. Uh, in fact, I was in my hometown last week in Texas, and I was driving by where an old Mazio's Pizza used to be. And I was like, oh, man, I remember like I, was a sh I got promoted to shift manager there. And I, I got fired the next day because I did some, some LSD and I couldn't, I couldn't do the math from the coin machines that, that I did. And I got fired from that place. I had a, a $70,000 credit card charge put on me from when I worked at Radio Shack. And then, uh, you know, the first time I, I tried to join the military, I didn't want to join the military. But I had one, I had one credit left. I had algebra to do in high school. I was going to this, this special school where you went 20 hours a week and for whatever reason, I just I would go in there and sleep under the desk. I wouldn't do this damn class, and this recruiter kept bothering me. He's like, "Hey, man, like, you know, you're saying if you join, if you if you pass this class, you'll join the army." I'm like, "Yeah." So one weekend, my parents went out of town, and for we snuck in the house. I wasn't supposed to be in the house. So I was staying in this camper outside, so we snuck in the house. There was a big party. I was cleaning up on a Sunday, so I'd get it ready. So I would go back to the camper, and they wouldn't know I was there. This recruiter shows up on my front porch, um, and I'm all hungover. I'm like. Man, what's, uh, he's like, look, you keep telling me that you join the army if you if you graduated high school. I'm like, yeah. He's like, look, I got your transcripts and I got your high school diploma right here. All you got to do is you got to go to MEPS with me tomorrow morning and join the army and you've graduated high school. I'm like, damn. I was like, all right. So he left and I called one of my friends and I was like, look, I was like, I don't know how much weed you got, but you need to bring it all over here because I got a drug test tomorrow that I can't pass. And he's like, what are you talking about? I was like, it makes perfect sense if you just don't think about it. So anyway, he came over. I went to MAPS, got my high school diploma on Wednesday, called me, he's like, oh, you know, you failed your drug test for the military. I'm like, oh, that's really weird. Um, but then fast forward to about a year and a half later, where I actually got my life together. I actually, well, I failed bowling class in, in, a, in a, the local college, which was kind of my wake up. I was like, man, I'm, I'm going down the drain. You know, if I hang out with my friends and I keep doing this, I'm going to end up dead. I just feel bowling class in college, which is, which is well, pretty embarrassing. I, I want to ask you about that. Cause I had heard that 
Yeah. How do you fail bowling? Yeah, so I probably could have passed, but I knew the owner, so I was always in the back by the pens with him, like smoking weed. So the, the teacher didn't really appreciate that at all. And he told my mom, too, because my mom was an instructor. I had a full ride at this college because my mom was a nursing instructor there. She was a nurse in the, in the Air Force, and she instructed at this college. So that was pretty embarrassing there. Uh, so I was like, man, I'm just bringing everything down. I was like, I'm a pretty smart individual. You know, what am I doing in my life? Like, I was doing all this stupid stuff, and all my friends were getting in trouble. So I was like, all right, I'm going to join the military because I always had this passion for, for, for military stuff, and I used to always memorize weapons and, and vehicles and whatnot. And I was like, I got to get, get my shit together here. So it took, an, it took an, literally an act of Congress. I had to get a letter from a congressman saying I was a changed man, you know, because of the, the, the failed drug test. And all these things just to get in the door um, to go to basic training. And then when I went to basic training, you know, I'd really been training for this this thing pretty hard in my head, but not physically at all. Um, so my first PT test, I scored like 93, 94 points out of 300, which is, it's impossibly low. It's it's impossible. There's a run, there's push-ups, and there's sit up and sit on the PT test. And to pass, you got to score 180. And yeah, I ran like 24 minute, two mile, uh, when they give the PT test, they brief you that, you know, you can walk, but it's not recommended. And I took that to heart. So um, it came out 24 minutes. And I don't, I don't even know how it's possible. Uh, so even even my start in the military was, it was pretty pathetic. I, I even ask questions to guys now. And when I hold boards as a sergeant major to, to, to new guys, I'm like, hey, like, let's say you, you get this new guy in the military and, you know, he's got a, a felony credit card charge on him. He's got a failed drug test. His first PT test is 93 points. Um, you see this, like, what are you going to do? Like, oh, we'd immediately go to legal, and we start prepping to see what we got to do to kick this guy out. And I'm like, all right, well, that was me coming in. And, and the only reason I'm here where I'm at now is because people actually didn't do that. They took the time and they invested some effort into me. And, you know, I started to actually care about that. And then, you know, now I'm in E9 with multiple valor awards. You know, even though I've got 30 surgeries, I can many fitness tests and stuff like that because, you know, it's all – you know, I, I truly believe that if no matter how how your mental outlook might be, whether you're in the dumps or doing dumb stuff or, you know, whatever somebody might be doing, you can always somebody people ever anybody can make that that mental change if they want to, and you know, become a juggernaut, which maybe not everybody. There's there's people that have certain, you know, diagnosed things that they just can't maybe do that. But those are very low percentile um, individuals. And, you know, I was luckily I made that shift in my mind. People invested in me, and they took their time, and, and they made sure that I was successful. And then, you know, I ended up being successful. So let me ask you though, because you bring up a good point where you say to to maybe take that chance on on the someone that you wouldn't think would be fit the mold. Mm -hmm. So I hear that. And I think, okay, yeah, that's a good idea. There are onesies and twosies and threes out there that, that you take the time on. Mm -hmm. How do you differentiate, though, between spending all the time on everybody that comes in that's a hard luck story and mm -hmm. knowing the difference and going, I can see the diamond in this rough? That's, you know, that's, that's, that's a deep question. And lately I've been reflecting on it a lot because I've, I've invested a lot of time into people that just didn't, they didn't pan out. So then you, then you ask yourself, well, man, I just, you know, and sometimes these people will turn on you, right? Like I've had recently, I've had a guy like, I'll invest a lot of time and turn on me and, and, and accuse me of some erroneous things. And 
when I think about when I think back on it, it's like okay, this keeps biting me in the ass, but but I wouldn't change it because the majority of the time, if people really appreciate what what you're doing for them and you dedicate that time to them, um, they do they do rise above, right? So I would say that those people that aren't that that you can't change, like they're pretty. I wouldn't say they're few and far between. It's there's much less of them than the people that you can actually affect and and bring up, which in in my mind makes it worth it, you know. And um, you know, we can invest in all kinds of things in life, but like time is the most precious thing that we have because you can't get that back. You don't invest time and get time back. You invest money in things, you can get money back. But you know, every time you do invest in somebody, and if they don't, if they don't make it right. You're literally giving your life to that because you're inching closer to death every time you you invest that time. Um, but then you just gotta you really gotta think about it. is it is that really worth it? Like I'm just gonna share real quick, you know, my, my mission statement. I, I reconcile this every morning. I don't think you've heard this one yet, but it, this is this is what I've had since 2013. I, I, I pin this down, but it says to educate, mentor, coach, advocate for, motivate, and inspire people around me enabling them to achieve seemingly impossible goals. And as a secondary to that, I continually educate myself so that I can continue being competent relative, which allows me to accomplish my primary goal. Um, and that's, that's something I've kind of always, I've always gone with. I, I pinned that in 2013, but I look at that every morning to make sure that, you know, is everything I'm doing kind of going towards that? Because, you know, that, that investment into people, like investing into people, like to me, it's the best investment you can make. Because in the day, I mean, we're all going to die and, and if you did a, most of your stuff just to self-serving things that helped you, maybe maybe you die happy, man. I know for me, I could die poor, but if I invested most of my time into trying to improve people or things around me, um, I think that's what's going to you know bring me that spiritual enlightenment or, or happiness or, or whatever well, you want to call it. Well, let me tag on to that. When you talk about you read that every morning. Now, as we all know, People have shitty days. I mean, let's agree. Mm -hmm. So you look at this every morning, you set yourself on a path, but we all know that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So how do we overcome that? How do you overcome that and drive on with that mission statement that you have? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, shitty days are they're a thing, right? They happen to, to all of us. Um, and it's real easy to get yourself into a hole sometimes. Uh, and I found sometimes you get, you get so deep in there that you can't really get yourself out of you kind of require that that assist from your buddies um but i found that you know when i get up and it's even you know i got like this is just the front page of my one notebook here it says instructions like 10 minutes of mission analysis daily but every morning i wake up and try to look at what it is that you know what am i about what am i trying to achieve no matter how shitty of a day it is and, and really trying to you know we, we I don't know if you remember Maslow's hierarchy from school, but you know, it, it, the top about the hierarchy of needs in life. That's, that's the one, um, you know, besides material things, like you got to find what spiritually fulfills you and, and what really brings you out of those holes. And I think that, you know, we're talking about mental health and stuff. It's, that's kind of important for people. You, you got to find internally what really drives you to, to get out of that darkness. And sometimes it's seemingly impossible. But for me, I found that this, this brings me out. So if I can, if, no matter how crappy the day is, no matter how down in the dumps I am, if I can, if I can realign myself with this thing, I found that, you know, it'll at least bring me to a point to where, you know, I feel better. Um, and, and that's really hard to do. Like, I, I know we've talked a little bit about, you know, therapy and, and psychotherapy and, and, and really like kind of dealing here. But over time, the reason I penned this in 2013 is because I was going through psychotherapy 
and, and I found that this was my driving factor, right? Um, so for me, that's what I found brings me out. Well, here's the, here's the kind of the hard spot of that is that you're a SAR major. There's not a lot of buddies to bring you out. There's not a lot of buddies at the top. It's pretty lonely up there. Yeah. Uh, and not only do you have to pull yourself out, but you're going to have to pull everyone else out. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is throughout your military career that has taught you to do that? Because like I said, there's, there's not a lot of people to bring you out at the top. You either perform or you don't, or you're gone. That's true. It is, it is lonely at the top, right? And, and there's not a whole lot of room for air up there. The minute you screw up, you know, when, when you're at the top, people just kind of abandon you, right? Because like, I don't want to be associated with that. When you're when you're not at the top, you have more of that that well, I guess base of people that are willing to, to bring you out um, and, and help you. So I, I think for me, I've just found that you know, if I can stay in that, that the hierarchy needs is, it's people laugh at it, but I found that you know, if I can if I can if I can keep myself at the top. Um, of that, and I'm just doing things that really fulfill me spiritually. I used to I used to scoff at that too, because in the military we have what's called preservation of the force and families, and one of the pillars is spirituality. And I used to be like, oh man, like oh, this is chaplains and whatnot. But what I found, maybe a little bit too late, like maybe just around 2018, I started really respecting that pillar because really that means like what really what really gives you that 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 fulfillment internally, other than just money or having fun or drinking or whatever, like what makes you feel good internally? And I wish I, that's something I would have realized much sooner is that that's super important. And that, that helps me bring me out of, you know, when I'm down there in, in the dumps, I do have really good friends. I'll say like, you know, even recently I've, I've come to realize that, you know, I'm really appreciative of the people that I have, um, built relationships with and, and I can look back in times that I've helped all these guys out of something, but you know, in, in hard times, they've always come back and they've, They've helped me. Uh, I mean, I recently had, last year, I had a, a lower back fusion, right? And the amount of people that came and went on walks with me was awesome. I just had a buddy. He just had a lower back fusion. Um, so I'm going to go walk with him on Thursday. And, you know, I've been, you know, trying to give him a lot of advice and spending some time with him. But just, you know, I know, I know we've talked a little bit about, like, what happens when people get out and why do people have problems, like, you know, six months to a year when they get out. Well, while we're in, and whether you're a first responder we're in the military, we have this community of like-minded individuals. And I'd say that, you know, our mentalities, if you're, if you're going to put yourself in these stressful situations, whether you're a firefighter or in the you know police department or, you know, whatever it is that puts you in, you know, this basically danger zone of life uh, or stressful situations, like we're not, we're not the norm, right? Like that's why we have such a low percentage of people that do that. Uh, and I think that we rely on that community. And I think that, those friendships and those connections, like besides, you know, that, you know, being at the top of trying to be at the top of the hierarchy, that's, that's kind of what pulls you up too. And you kind of, you got to maintain that. Cause what I've seen is people get out and they let that falter and all of a sudden they find themselves alone. And then that's when they start having problems. Right. Um, because it's, it's on you too, to maintain those connections. You don't just get out and say, Hey, um, hopefully people are there for me. You actually got to make that, you know, that effort as well. But but let me throw it back to you about that. You would agree that, because you've been around since 98, you would agree until, I would say, the last 8 to 10 years, mental health, watching over the troops, was not really at the forefront of the Army's thought. No. Well, probably not the first responders for, like, if I had a, but I guess, I, you know, I don't really know. I would still say that that's very lacking. 
I would still yeah. say that that's really? very much you lacking. You don't think it's come as far as the military? No, absolutely not. Really? That's interesting because I would say that I've always made the argument, you know, we've got like, all these people in the military have PTSD. I would say the majority of your, your law enforcement or your firefighters or even your, par your, your paramedics, right? They see more stressful stuff on a daily basis than most soldiers do, you know? Um, you know, whether it's, oh man, this person's bleeding out or something traumatic that affects you in the head, you know? Um, so I've always, I've always kind of joked like, oh, is this guy just playing the PTSD card? Is it like, cause he, you know, I don't think he really saw much, but I don't see this fire department over here is responding every other day to something in New York that they don't have like all this stuff going on. So I've always wondered about that. Like, But I, I, I think the problem with that is, is you and I have talked about this before. There's a stigma. Mm -hmm. So you can do whatever you want until you get that stigma broken. And until it comes from the top down, that that stigma is not there and you lead from the front by doing it, mm -hmm. it'll never go away. Yeah. So you can bring in therapists every other day. If you want, no one's going to take it seriously until you get someone in a leadership position showing how it's done. It's true. And you, you think that that's lacking right now in the, you know, in the long, I think it's world? lacking in general in the world, mm -hmm. uh, not just first responders and stuff. I think that there is a huge stigma attached to talking to someone yeah, and telling them that there's problems. Everyone needs to be, uh, especially in these kind of jobs, everyone needs to just get the mission done. And that's very true. The mission does need to get done, but mm -hmm. you've got to take care of yourself on the backside. Yeah. And I mean, I like to say physical and mental health or physical and mental training, right? I, I, I used to just talk about physical training, but the reality is like, this is the, you know, this right here is the brain. This, this controls everything. So if this isn't healthy or you're not actually just training this on a daily basis, then, you know, how is this going to, you know, your body, how is that really going to, you know, come along, especially if this is kind of, you know, maybe struggling with something or, or, or something happened to where, you know, you're just not fully attentive because, you know, you're thinking about something else. Yeah. And, you know, I, I kind of want to get into the injuries and what happened to you. And I, I, I want to talk about your mind state because some of these uh, injuries, two of them were like a year apart from each other, mm -hmm. uh, two of the major ones. Um, but let's start with 2008, March 28th, 2008. Uh, mm -hmm. You're with uh, Detachment Alpha 392. Is that mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. uh, you are moving in. I'm guessing like MRAPs or vehicles that were supposed to be mine resistant. Mm -hmm. You found out uh, that, that they weren't as mine resistant or explosive resistant as possible. So if you can walk us through that story and then I'll kind of ask you questions as we go along the way. Yeah. So that trip, we found ourselves in a place called Helmand, Afghanistan, which was, was out West and heavily I Every time we left the water, we knew somebody was going to die. You're just hoping it wasn't American, which sounds kind of kind of bad. But every time we left the water, something would happen. And we hit so many IEDs um, that we finally got these RG33 vehicles in country, which were these mine-resistant vehicles coming from coming from Africa. Uh, so the, the very first ones in country came in, and we flew down to, to Kandahar from our fire base. And we, we got a week-long class. We got a bunch of training. And we're taking the first ones back to the fire base. Uh, Usually on the hardball road and the almost called the ring road in Afghanistan, we didn't have any problems. We got ambushed um, here and there, but never IEDs. Uh, 
well, these guys, the Taliban had a, had a different, you know, they had something waiting for us. So did these vehicles. And I didn't have have my uh, harness on top. I just had my lap belt on because I knew when we hit the dirt road, which is called Highway 611 up to Robinson, it was going to be game on. We're going to get some IDs. We're going to get some firefights. But we knew on the on the hardball road, it'd be a couple pot shots here and there, nothing big. Um, but we were about 40 minutes outside of uh, Kandahar Air Base, just, just west of Kandahar City. And uh, there was a 500-pound bomb in a culvert. So uh, the lead vehicle got, got hit with something. Their mine roller got blown off. The vehicle we were in is, you know, it's a 33,000-pound vehicle. got picked up, thrown 50 meters down the road, and it was on its side, kind of on its top, facing the wrong way, and you couldn't even really see it was a vehicle. Uh, the guy sitting next to me, our, our Air Force JTAC, he died instantly. The driver died instantly. The captain, who was up in the front passenger seat, he uh, his back was broken, uh, and he was hurt so bad he had to get to the military. And then myself, or, or yeah, me and another guy in the back, uh, we were severely injured. We we're just I, mean, I don't really remember it too much. My first memory is kind of on the helicopter, um, but they ended up pulling us out of there, and um, I ended up having seven skull fractures, and all this was rebuilt over the course of four years. I didn't have front teeth for about four years, and that, that caused a lot of TBI to wear. Uh, I had to go through cognitive therapy. I was dyslexic all of a sudden. Um, and I still have to go to cognitive therapy every couple of years to retrain my brain how to think because uh, I don't, I'm not, my speech will get off and I don't think properly and, I, and I'll become dyslexic in the way I think. So when it comes to like mental stuff too, I, when it comes to like just brain pathways and how to do that, I think that's pretty important to train that. You know, I think we've come a long way in the military to where we have a lot of sports psychs that work with us that do these aggravating things that, force you to, to think properly and retrain those pathways but i think that that can actually help on the you know, the other side of the house to where you're mentally prepared for other things I don't, I don't know how that is in the law enforcement world but we have those dedicated to our training assets now to where a sports psychiatrist is there with your trainer and your your physical therapist and um, your dietitian so the first question that comes to mind from it you have people that Broke his back, had to get out of the military, the captain. You had two people die instantly. You and another guy live. Let's talk mm. about survivor's guilt right off the bat. It's yeah. It's got to affect you, um, especially when you are going in, being who you guys are, being what you're in, thinking at the point that you're, you say it before, juggernauts, that you're unstoppable, and then it comes down to a crashing halt in the blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we already lost a couple guys before that. It was about two weeks before that we'd lost our, our dog handler uh, IED, and this guy was got stuck in the back of the vehicle, and it, it cut him so so bad that I mean he was bleeding from places that just couldn't stop the bleeding, and uh, he ended up bleeding out, and you know, and then these two guys die. Really, our team that that trip got we just got annihilated. We more than half of us were were severely wounded or or killed. Um, yeah, so when you get back, that's that's pretty tough too, and then. You know, we're doing funerals for for these guys, right? So then you're talking to their families, and and you're dealing with that. And you know, I've got brain injury at that point in time, so I'm not thinking straight. Um, all my ribs are broken, um, so you're not saying the right things at the funeral. But then, you know, the families generally, what I found, like they're looking at you, they're kind of blaming you in a way as well. So that's that always leads to a, I don't even know if that's survival's guilt, survival guilts. It's just, it's just weird. It's a weird feeling. And maybe they're not, but in your head, you're like, oh, like, you know, they totally blame me for what happened there. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Tell me, like, what that feeling is, what, why you get that feeling from it. 
because I, I I've got to believe that it can't be blatantly obvious. So it's got to be something that you're reading into the situation. Um. Yeah. Actually, you know what? I didn't. I didn't really give it a whole lot of thought until. So, you know, after that trip, I was. I was. I, I snuck into a deployment, but I got banned from deploying. But the the team, the next team that I was on, I was supposed to be, you know, in a certain place with them when we deployed, or when they deployed, and they lost three people um, pretty quickly. Right. That's really kind of where the first time I I think I would have had survivor's guilt, or maybe that's I don't know how to define it right then because all of a sudden I felt like okay, well, we just lost these people from 2008, and I was there. Now because of that. I'm not with the team here, and they just lost all these people. Um, and then I lost another really good friend that had been on my team. The, the medic that pulled me out of the vehicle, a guy named um, Dan Adams, he he became a team star on another team, and he died about three weeks after the guys on my team died in 2012 that, that I wasn't there for. So that's that's kind of where I went through like almost like a, I don't know, I wouldn't say it's a psychotic break, but a, a mental breakdown to where I had to take you know, I was on the rise of Pam and some other things for anxiety, and I just couldn't cope with with reality. And I and I wasn't really, you know, going to a psychotherapist or anything at that point in time. I didn't really know a whole lot about that. We were lacking there. We only had one psychiatrist for our entire special forces group at that one point in time because nobody nobody understood the effects of, of combat and and you know those things that you go through mentally. So you know, for about six months there is when I would say like that's when the survivor's guilt and I just couldn't cope um, or had a really hard time coping there. I didn't have anybody there, but just deployed. So I didn't have anybody there, you know, to help me out of that, that hole I was in. And I found that the harder I tried to get out, the deeper I got into the hole. Um, and to be honest, I have no idea how I got out of that one. Like, I don't, I don't know. how. I don't remember how I got out of that hole, but it was, I remember it being very horrible. Um, and I felt extremely guilty about, you know, the loss of my friends, because I felt like, well, if I had been there, or if I'd done this differently, then, you know, this would have changed. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's, that's kind of what was no, going through my head was. No, it does. But I want to go to the psychotic break for a minute that, that you're talking about. Now, you're going through two years of therapy. You're having facial reconstruction, uh, 17 facial reconstructions, right? Yeah. Uh, you have massive injuries to your body. So I'm wondering what was the thing? Because you would think in the very beginning that would might be what, what gets you on that track. What was it that made you have the break though? So, you know, we lost the guys on my team I was who I were really good friends with. It was a captain and a, another guy, Marty Apollonar, he was my, my junior weapon sergeant, and then their their dog handler. Excuse me. And then when I lost, you know, Dan Adams, my best friend, it was, you know, shortly after that. That, that was kind of the final straw. And, um, you know, my personal life, I instantly had a bunch of problems um, with my marriage at the time. And it, you know, and I don't even think it was like a single thing. It was just kind of, I was on that downward slope of, um, you know, I was already pissed and I was, I was, I was really feeling guilty that I wasn't, I wasn't able to do my job, you know, because we pride ourselves on being able to, to be these highly functional human beings now I can't do my job, and now not being able to do my job, now I just lost a lot of really good friends. You know, man, if I just could have been there or done something different. Oh, and by the way, this guy is the guy that pulled me out of the vehicle when I was all jacked up, and he's the one that had to deal with these dead guys. Uh, you know, really good friends with his family at the time. Um, 
yeah, it was, it was kind of just a perfect storm of things and it just all hit me at the same time. And, you know, I, and that's where I, where I realized too, is when you're in that abyss, when you're in that hole mentally, you know, it's easy to say, oh, that guy's just weak or what are they thinking? But when you're in there, it's, it's, it feels like it's impossible to pull yourself out. And it's almost when you try hard to like, when you're looking at like, oh, I just had a mission statement or whatever, you know, everything I tried to, to bring myself out of that, like nothing worked. I just, I just found myself deeper in, in that hole. Um, you know, I really, I found like talking to a therapist finally, or like a really good psychotherapist, you know, if it's a good psychotherapist, he's going to help you talk yourself, you know, out of things. He's not going to give you advice. He's, he's going to be there to be honest with you, but he's going to help you talk yourself out. And that's kind of how I got out of that hole at the end of the day. So how does that manifest itself? Because you said it, it traveled over into your marriage and everything. So mm-hmm. how does that manifest itself back here in a marriage? Yeah, I mean, you come back and, you know, everything you feel you're, you're, you're putting off. And I think like for me at that point in time, you know, I'm not the type of guy that has a bad day. Like I don't, I don't wake I don't ever wake up in a bad mood. I don't ever come and I don't transfer, you know, my bad days or feelings to other people. Uh, so it's not like I was, I was like, oh, this is all your fault or this and that. I was just, I kind of closed up and I was like, all right, I'm done. You know, we're done. I didn't give a good reason why. And then. I just wanted to be alone and didn't tell anybody really what the problem was because I didn't know what the problem was, I guess, at the time. And, and it lasted for a couple of years, really. That part went to where I just kind of closed up and and wouldn't talk about anything to, to, to a whole lot of people, really. So uh, drinking prescription pills, is all this starting to affect you? Um, yeah, I wasn't really heavily drinking, I wouldn't say. I was taking like Benzies, like lorazepam for sleeping, which you shouldn't do, stuff like that. Um, and that's, I found you take that stuff, you got amnesia. So I'd, I'd get phone calls from people like, hey, I had this weird conversation from you today. I'm trying to make sure you're okay. Uh, so I'd take a bunch of lorazepam. And I don't know why the doc was giving them to me. I mean, he didn't even tell me it was called all this stuff. He just gave me, I was like, I need more lorazepam. He gave me all this lorazepam. So I was taking a ton of that. And then I have all these conversations with people that I, that I wouldn't remember. Um, so I wouldn't say it was drinking. It was more like that prescription drug abuse at that point in time. And I think it back on, I'm like, man, why did that doctor even prescribe you that for one? And well, that was like, my next question was that, don't you think that's part of the problem? Because I still think that that's a huge problem right now. Oh yeah. Like definitely. Like if, if I wouldn't have had lorazepam or, or that much of it, like 120 pills, uh, I think that I probably could have pulled myself out of that probably a little bit faster because that, that was my go-to like oh, i take this i don't have anxiety i feel good i don't remember anything so that's cool and then i take it and i sleep which and it's really dangerous too coming to find out later that you don't want to take it as a sleeping aid so how anyway. much how many pills do you think you were taking a day uh i mean a lot probably like six to eight and with the rise of pam it's got a pretty long half-life so you're only supposed to take that stuff you know like every eight hours or something like that right um you know but every time i feel a little anxious or anxiety i'd, I'd take that and then um you know i'm sure i was drinking a little bit which probably didn't help but it was mainly that it was mainly man this is the go-to this thing is great so how does it affect your we've talked about marriage we've talked about uh going through your physical therapy your surgeries how's it affecting you at work yeah at that point in time like horrible like i didn't even come to work for a while people were joking about like where is this guy at 
you know, and I was, I just kind of shut myself off from, you know, family, work, and pretty much everything at that point in time. So, you know, that's probably the only time I can remember my career to where, you know, I just kind of just sucked at my job too, because, you know, I wasn't applying myself. And at that point in time, I was pretty much, I had front teeth again. Was that front teeth at that point in time? Either way, I was pretty physically healthy. I could do everything. There wasn't a whole lot besides getting that last couple surgeries and a letter from the surgeon and from the psych center was clear to, to really let me get back in the game. So, yeah, I just sucked there for a little while. Kind of, you know, I still feel guilty about that point in time in my career. Like, damn, I actually sucked in my career there for a little while. How long do you think that period of time was? For the work piece, probably about like six to eight months, maybe a little bit longer. And I was thinking bizarre things like, oh, I'm going to, like, change my job and move to Fort Polk or like all kinds of just wild stuff that made zero sense. That wouldn't have been, you were going to be up for Fort Polk. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know what my line of thinking was. Um, but, and, and I, I wish I could remember what the final thing was that snapped me out. But I remember one day, one day I was like, all right, this is ridiculous. And I was like, all right, I'm not taking the rise of pain anymore. Cause this stuff is just like, I don't, I don't remember anything. And I didn't even throw it away. I just, I put it in my cabinet and made the decision like, okay, I'm not doing that. I'm just going to focus on talking to a psychotherapist. Um, my friends are coming back from Afghanistan at that point in time. I'm going to work on getting myself right, get myself clear for duty so I can go. I, was, I got promoted to E at that point in time so I could take a team and I could I can stop feeling sorry for myself and being this weirdo mentally. Um, and then I just dedicated myself to, to actually doing that without lorazepam, you know, keeping me afloat. It's kind of a, a movie cliche, but I got to ask this question. When you come back, do you apologize? How do you come back into this world? Because you said the guys are asking like, where the fuck is this guy? Uh, you, you by your own admission sucked at your job at that point. What do you do to get back in? Cause this is a very, uh, alpha dominated group. How do you ingratiate yourself back into that group? You know, like, well, for me, like most guys are deployed. So it's really the, the, the rear detachment guys that, I were having to deal with it, but you know, I just came back and like, all right, guys, like, I just got back in the fold. Uh, I deployed with another detachment to Tajikistan, where I, I worked as their their mountain expert there. I was supposed to take that team over as a team star, and I just applied myself and, and started working hard and um, really started working hard physically again. Got myself back into to really good shape, and then just really concentrating on making sure that that, that mental aspect is something that. Really, from then forward, I really put a lot of time and effort into that that mental aspect of training, not just not just getting to it after something happens. But that's that's really when I realized that if you don't train the mental component as hard as you train the physical component, you're you're failing yourself. So now I don't I don't even talk about physical training. I when I'm doing a hard workout, I generally a couple times a week I'll have a sports psych down there, whether it's doing heart rate variability training or, or cognitively thinking about how to get over stress or or how to control you know, your heart rate or what you're thinking about during certain things. Cause I'm a firm believer now that you can train that stuff early on. It helps you become stronger mentally when things are going to shit too, because then you know all the techniques to, to deal with anxiety, to deal with, Oh man, I know my heart rate very, I know my, my, my sympathetic nervous system is, is at full speed. Here's how I can get myself out of that without going towards medication. Here's how I can control these things without medication. I think that, you know, we lack on that education, but you can get real nerdy with that. I get real nerdy to where I have all kinds of heart rate variability apps and I do all kinds of things to, to ensure that, you know, okay, if I, if I take this for sleep, is it really affecting my sleep on my watch and all this other stuff? 
if it doesn't, I'll quit taking it. But, you know, I think if we can learn this, like, what is a parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system? Like, how, what are the physiological responses to stress? You know, even, I would just say that, you know, let's say nothing happens. Let's say you don't lose friends or you weren't hurt, but just the day-to-day stress where you're hyper-aware and you kind of law enforcement or military job, that itself, like, puts you off over time. Like, that's that's almost unhealthy. Well, it's just, it's very unhealthy to your body. And if you get stuck in those those zones where you can't get out of that, and we don't address that, right? That's, that's something that's not natural. Like, if you're hyper-aware for too long, your body has physiological change, and it can lead to all kinds of stuff. And that's why a lot of people go to drinking and stuff, because they don't know. That helps them get out of that that that, that sympathetic nervous system, but they don't know that there's other ways to do that, you know, and we don't train on that. So, yeah, I would say that that, for me, kind of changed my whole mental outlook on, hey, you know, mental health is important and it's just as important as your physical health. And if you don't take that seriously and get ahead of the power curve, or if you think that, you know, you know, it's got that stigma attached to it, it's kind of stupid stuff, or that's not, you know, it's not mainly to, to do that, uh, you're gonna you're gonna be behind like you know, like we talked earlier just seeing a psychotherapist and i don't care how healthy you are once a year is amazing i think everybody should do that if not more because you know that just opens your own mind to, to things that you might not even know are going on so what year are we in about right now about 2010 2011 uh, it's about 2000 2012 is when i had the the, the kind of the epiphany like hey you know this when I started digging myself on like you got to take mental health seriously for all of us, and, and if you don't train that, um, you're, so here's you're my question: on. 2012, you're back, you're doing your thing, you're becoming that juggernaut again. Are you telling your guys this mental stuff? Yes. Yeah, so at that point in time is so when I took over my team as a detachment team star in 2013, we brought a sports psychiatrist in right away. And we had that person help us build our ethos and everything. And then we include him with our physical training every week to where he'd come in and just start messing with our heads. He'd hook us up to heart rate variability things, working us through all kinds of stuff to, to be able to concentrate. Um, you know, and, and I don't know if you've seen the helmet cam footage of my medic when I got shot in, in the back. But, you know, for everything that was going on, even though he wasn't ex- extremely calm, but he was pretty damn calm. And, and I, would, I would say that's a test to, like, or a testament to the the mental training that we did as well to, to kind of get your head in the game when, when when the world's falling apart around you. The second part to that question would be: you're telling your guys about this. You're you're now the the town crier about it. You're telling mm-hmm. everyone about it. How are your guys accepting it? So it's hard to get guys bought in, right? Because right, the mental thing is not it's not you don't get tangible. It's not like bicep curls where you, you know you can do want the bicep curls and your biceps look fabulous. It's not something you can see. I found even now, like many years later, it's hard to get guys bought in to the mental component because they can't see it. Um, and it's got that stigma, right? And, and people are like, oh, it's just, you know, it's some kind of magical stuff or whatever. Um, but I would say for my attachment, because guys would see the tangible results. We There's this one extra this thing I run. We're in a three-hour, four-hour event, right? And when I was a company started to run this long event, and then there would be physical and mental things in there. But in the middle of it, um, you came in, you're doing sled pushes and pulls, you're tired, uh, your heart rate's up, and you come to the table and you open some mental folder, and it's a Chili's coloring book with three crowns and very specific instructions. So you get 10 minutes to like do all this stuff, like color with these specific things on this, get in between the lines, like order your kid these specific things at the end. And everybody would bomb it because they couldn't get their heart rate down. But then I had some other guy just come in 
like, hey, do this. He's, he's stress-free, and he'd do it in, like, six or seven minutes. And it was just it's, it's showing guys, like, hey, guys, like, you know, you can you can get your heart rate down. You can control your, your mental capacity and do this. You're letting this thing over. You're letting a children's coloring book overwhelm you, right? But that's no different than letting anything else overwhelm your mind when you find yourselves in those situations. So if you can learn the techniques to control it there, those those exact same principles and techniques that work for that work if, you know, you're having a really bad, you know, if I were to go back to when I was having my problems in 2011, 2000, early 2012, those same techniques would have helped me not use the lorazepam and to help me pull myself out of that um, because, you know, the basic science behind it, which I'm glad we're doing more and we can, we can kind of identify now, it works and those principles work. With saying that, and you say that this coloring book is, you know, kicking these guys' ass, you can't get them to necessarily buy into the mental because they can't see it. Mm-hmm. So explain how they do it every day in combat because they do it every day in combat. These guys are putting it on the line, law enforcement, firefighters, military, every day on the line. How do they do that without buying into the mental? Cause don't you think they have to buy in a little bit? You do, but I think guys do it without realizing, because if you really look at our, our training pathways and what we do, we, we really inoculate against stress. Right. Um, but what we do a, a poor job of is, is teaching guys like, Hey, even though, we're inoculated against it and we can take it. Here's the long-term effects of that. And if most of us are just compartmentalized stuff and we'll put things in little boxes and put it away and then eventually it blows up on us. Right. I think we do, we don't do a very good job of teaching people that aspect of it. Um, so we teach people to, to deal with it right up front, but then um, not too far in depth to where you're like, you can really realize like, damn, this coloring books like overwhelming me, but the long-term effects of, you know, all that stress, like when you find yourself in life or death situations every day as a police officer, um, or even multiple times a week, like that stuff accumulates over time, right? And at some point in time, it's going to catch up with you. I don't, I don't care, you know, how strong you think you are. At some point in time, it catches up with everybody. It's Pandora's box. That's the way we talked about it in another conversation I had is Pandora's box. And a lot of people wait to open Pandora's box until it's too late, and then it just springs open, and everything comes out at once. Like right when they get out, right? Like when they retire. When they when they get out, or maybe when they're close to getting out, because that's another point in time where you're looking at, okay, I'm going to retire, and it seems like a happy thing. Man, I'm going to do what I want to do. But then these guys really start thinking, like, what the fuck am I going to do every day now? I have no mission to do now. Mm-hmm. Um and, and I think that's where you start to worry about it. And you see these guys that, that, that stick around for 35 and 40 years, uh, you know, and, and it's because there's nothing there to go to. It scares them to go into that. Yeah. Now we're in October of 2012. You're back. Once again, we said you're doing your thing. We need to talk about this injury because if I'm correct, this is where you also received your silver star, correct? Mm-hmm. So if we can uh, walk through this one. So what year are we in right now? So that was 2013. So I took over the team sergeant. Later that year, we deployed to Afghanistan uh, with the 6th Special Operations Kandak, which is the Commando Kandak in in Camp Moorhead, which is the National Commando Kandak in Afghanistan. They're responsible for responding to to crises all over the country. Um, Came down with this mission. They said, hey, we're going, we're going to do these back-to-back missions in this valley. They have up to 800, 800 fighters. At the time, we had a force ratio, which you could have one Green Beret per 10 Afghans. 
which didn't make any sense to me. It's one of those things, again, it makes perfect sense if you don't think about it, right? Um, but they're like, hey, you know, you're getting three Chinooks. Here's your, here's your limitations, which the weight, cap the weight capacity, we had 88 people we were going to take in. So we had 88 people going against, you know, six to 800 enemy. Um, so we go in, and I think we only had seven or eight Green Berets, and, you know, the rest of them were Afghans. Um, we go in and we find ourselves thoroughly outmaneuvered where these guys are coming in within hand grenade range, throwing the hand grenades over our walls. We have to fight them. We're fighting them back. We're killing a lot of them. And, and I pushed out with the kill team to try to get behind a, an ambush line that, that our ISR had seen that, hey, these guys are they're set up to where when this other element goes out, they're going to they're gonna ambush. We're like, All right, well, let's go kill them. So we, we hit part of them with a Hellfire. And as they were maneuvering to where I thought they were, we got ambushed by another element, which happened to be three machine guns and a bunch of other people from 25 meters. Afghan got shot. All the Afghans ran. And they all ran away. Um, so there's a couple of us sitting there fighting, and we got to pull back. And uh, the Afghans ran, and then our Apaches overhead, their, their guns were broken. So we didn't have any air support, and we had no other aircraft overhead at the time. Uh, Afghan platoon leader came back with a couple of Afghans. Like, look, we're going to fight out. we got to get this Afghan. Because if the enemy captures him, it's going to screw up this entire mission. It was risk to mission at that point in time. It was like, we're probably going to go out there. We're going to get we're going to get fucked up and get shot. But if we don't get this guy, it's going to ruin this entire mission set. So we fought out. Uh, I got to this guy. We started dragging him out. Um, killed a bunch of the dudes out there. Uh, I thought we killed all the machine guns, but one of the machine guns started opening up on the platoon leader, and. Uh, I thought I knew where this guy was. I started shooting at him, but I was off. And then he transitioned to me, opened up, uh, one round hit my right leg right above the knee, and that pushed me forward, um, kind of like I was almost like I was in a Superman pose. And as that happened, the next round came, and it hit me right on top of the, the back, hit my shoulder blade, and, and traveled down my spine, or traveled down my back down to my lower, lower spine. And then I had one round hit me in the butt, but it broke through the brachial nerve complex and the artery back here. But luckily, I landed in this little shit ditch, so the rest of the rounds went around me. And as I knew, I knew when he was reloading because he stopped shooting. I, I got up. I was like, "Oh, no, I'm going to kill this dude." But my right arm wouldn't work. I'm like, "All right, well, that sucks." Um, and I, I couldn't grab this Afghan. I, like, I looked at somebody's like, "Grab this dude. Let's get around the corner." So I go around the corner. And my medic starts working on me. Um, it turns out that it was really bad, and I bled out internally. Uh, they put me in a Skedco and cinched it together pretty pretty hard because they're going to hoist me out on a helicopter so it would actually save me when i got to the the hospital i actually bled out and crashed on the operating table a couple times because uh, i didn't have any red blood cells it took i don't know 11 12 units of blood to get me just stable enough to to where they could get me to germany and then uh yeah so that was that was a little bit of a recovery but i was back in combat within three months um for that trip my my, my arm didn't work too well Actually, I didn't sneak back into that that trip. I just, I just kind of forced my way back into that trip. I didn't get, didn't get fired. Is ridiculous. Is a, well, let's let's talk about a couple of the finer points of that mission. So, with your air support, those Apaches were on the wrong uh, LZ, right? No, so that was actually so the, that was the mission. That was the next. So that was when I got shot in the back. The, the next okay, year so I got let's, shot in the hand. Let's leave that one then. Let's leave yeah. that one then. Yeah. So uh, you don't have air support. It comes in. You receive your silver star for this one for the actions that you did that night. Yeah. You die on the table a couple times. 
had they given you something too that they couldn't figure out why your blood pressure kept yeah, dropping? So they, they were pumping me full of Hexton, which we don't use anymore, but Hexton was a, an IV that would give guys and it would force it force all your water into your, your bloodstream so it would keep your blood pressure up. So um, it's, and it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because the, X, the Hexton probably kept me alive because it kept my blood pressure up. But when I got to the hospital, I didn't have any red blood cells. So they couldn't figure out why my blood pressure was good but I kept crashing and when they did the first surgery, they wouldn't, they refused to give me more pain meds. Um, so they just gave me a, I don't know, a disassociate. They didn't give me enough of it because I felt that thing and they couldn't figure out why I was in so much pain, but they finally figured it out and they started pumping me full of blood, like mad. Like they had like people that just push and blood into me and then the artery popped back open um, after they closed it. So they go back and reopen it or reclose it up. Um, yeah, it was, that was intense. So the fact that, they didn't give me enough disassociate kind of sucked. Yeah. And, and we're going to get to that. So you sit through all this consciously paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. You get out of the hospital on a Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're back in the gym the following Monday. Yep. So, yep. Came was, it because, was it because of that first injury? What drove you so hard? You, you got messed up on this one. You died on the table. And this is where I ask you about the mental thing of, of mm-hmm. getting back into it. You had to think at some point, like, shit, I've got to slow down. I've got to do something because I can be as physical as I want, but I almost died. And quite frankly, I died a couple times on the table. There's mm-hmm. got to be something going on mentally with you. Yeah. So at that point in time, I think, I think it had to do with, you know, we're talking about the survival's good before too. I was like, oh man, I got to get back to my team because you know what's not going to happen again is I'm not going to be sitting here when guys on my team die again. Uh, you know, so that was kind of in my head too, is, is I got to get back in this fight and I'm going to prove that I can do it. It was like, nah, this guy's out for years. I'm like, nope. I had a bunch of tubes sticking out of me, uh, you know, with the little little suction things and all kinds of other stuff. And the, the, the wound wasn't even, I still had a, a wound vac on the back because I hadn't closed it yet. And I was back in the gym working out and um, I took the return to duty test. But, the group started major and the commander like, Chuck, you are not coming back to combat. Um, I was like, what the hell? So I took way too many pain meds one night and probably, you know, a little bit to drink. And I called my uh, group's uh, command sergeant major. I was like, hey, look, check it out. I'm coming back. I'm coming back on this date. I took the return to duty, the return to duty test. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm gonna buy a plane ticket to Germany. So unless you put a guard at every single airport out there, um, you're not going to stop me from doing that. And then I'm going to give myself seven days of paid vacation in Germany. And then when I'm done with that, I'm going to catch a medevac bird back into the country. And he's like, you're not going to do that. And I was like, okay. And that's exactly what I did. And when I landed, those guys were waiting for me to, at the flight line in, uh, in Bagram, and they were not happy. But they're like, look, you're, you're a testament to our Thor 3, which is our physical fitness program, obviously, because you're here. Um, you know, your arm doesn't even really work properly because I think you're trying to hide something. I was, I could make it look good, but um, it still didn't function completely properly. He's like, but you're not going on a combat mission. You go back to the fire base, you're not going back on combat missions. I still went back on a, my, I snuck on the last combat mission with one of my buddies that was coming to replace us. That was pretty cool. Um, okay. um, so let me ask you though, at any point, do you think like you're, you're injured, your arm's not working properly? Do you ever think in your mind that you could be a detriment to the group? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know, when I finally went on the last combat mission, it's kind of, you know, I went to the range. I went through 
all the wickets. I put myself through everything I thought I could possibly, you know, hold me back. And I was doing well with everything. I was like, all right, so I think this last mission, like, let's do it. Uh, you know, I've got no problems right now. I was deadlifting. At, before I even went back, I was deadlifting over 500 pounds again. There's a video of that um, before I redeployed. It was just moving the arm. It was, I couldn't, I couldn't lift anything with the elbow in a down position. I had to put the elbow up, but, but I managed to, to cut through that. I would just sit there and practice every day with my weapon and to where I finally, you know, somehow the, those nerve channels started working again and, and I was able to do it. So by the last mission, I felt like I wasn't a detriment. Uh, do the guys on your team say anything to you? No, I mean, they were all fighting for me to get back out on missions to everybody. Yeah. I, it was it was pretty clever. It was like, damn, this guy's back in combat, and you know, I meant a lot to them that you know I strove to get back there, and you know, part of it was probably trying to prove a point to myself, but really, it was for me, it was just that team dynamic, and you know, I want to get back out there for them, and because it was pretty, it was pretty rough. Those guys, you know, while I was out of the fight, those guys were getting in some hellacious firefights. Let's talk about your third injury. And and this is all pushing towards something in the end. So let's talk about your third injury. Uh, what year are we in now? So it's 2014, exactly a year okay. later. Okay. Yeah. So you're on a quick reaction force mission? So, yeah. So we had to go up. We got told, hey, you got you got about four hours. You're going to Kunduz, Afghanistan. It's getting overrun. So we loaded up our stuff, went up there, um, linked up with our Afghans, and we started immediately doing missions up up in Kunduz. In the morning, one of our commando companies and well there's actually two companies, an armored company and one of their two companies with a bunch of bunch of their um their special response team forces there, which is another cool story. When I was in two thousand seven we stood up their police units there, the special response teams and then it endured. So the ones that we stood up is what we're using again in two thousand thirteen. And so these guys all like remembered us. Anyway, they they go out and the Afghans get pinned down, and they're getting their asses kicked. So the Afghan commander comes up. I'm actually coming out of the shower. He's like, hey, Chuck. He's like, hey, your battalion commander's here. Let's have a discussion. The guys like, okay. He's like, look. He's like, our guys are pinned down. They cannot leave. He's like, we want you to take your guys. We want you to take these 30 Afghans over here. that They didn't go on the mission because they're retarded, and they didn't want to take them. So, but we want you to take them and then go link up with these dudes and then take control of the situation. I was like, all right, well, let me talk to the team leader. The team leader came out of the shower. I was like, hey, so this is, this is probably the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, this is a stupid idea. It's 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, these guys have heavy weapons pinning them down. They want us to land in MI-17 helicopters flown by Afghans um, to link up with them. I was like, it's dumb, but we should do it because we're Green Berets and this is what we do. So I, I'm recommending that we do this stupid-ass thing. And he's like, I agree. So that's what we did. So we go. We link up with the Afghans to do rehearsals. I play in the HLZ, put myself in the lead bird. I'm usually in the last bird, but I knew it was going to be a shit show when we landed. So I put myself in the lead bird. Um, the Apaches, this is the one where they had they're out the wrong HLZ. So they call, I'm listening, like, Apaches like, hey, the HLZ is clean. I'm like, Sweet. That's surprising. The HLZ is supposed to be real fucked up. So as we're landing, all of a sudden all the bullet holes start coming down the line in the helicopter. I'm like, okay, that's, that's not good. As we get off, you know, it's not basically yeah, an L-shaped ambush. We're in the middle of this field. And we get off, and I'm like, damn, okay. So we can either assault into these fortified positions about 300 meters in this field, or we can go that way behind us, which is about 600 meters. So it was like the best the best bad decision you can make is to assault into these positions. So that's what we end up assaulting into these positions. And uh, 
it felt like these guys were just hunting on me. There were so many rounds coming in, and they weren't hitting me. I was like, damn, I am invincible. That's pretty cool. But my last little three to five second rush of this last, it was the only berm out there. Um, PKM round hit my my knuckle. It came in the middle knuckle and, and popped out the side. Blew all the bones in the side of my hand. And I was like, holy shit. And it, it hurt. It was surprisingly painful. And uh, for this, really the first time I can remember, I was actually scared there. I was like, man, I planned this HLZ, you know, I'm the one that advocated for this mission, and now we're all going to die, and it's all going to be my fault. And I was just mentally defeated for about 10 seconds, and I was like, wait a minute, this is this is not, this is stupid. Hell no, like, we're badasses, fuck that. Um, reached over, grabbed the JTAC, I'm like, where are the Apaches? He's like, I don't know. I heard the Apaches come over my net, and they were like, hey, you know, I forgot the call signs, but... You know, we're here. I'm like, yo, you guys are in the wrong HLZ. So I was like, hey, the Apaches are in the wrong HLZ, and they're on the wrong net. They're on the wrong frequency. So we got them on the right frequency. Got them with a the JTAG. I was like, hey, this is what I need you to do. This is, I need you to call in guns here. I need rockets here. Um, stack the deck with the AC-130 that's overhead. Or, or stack the deck with aircraft, get the AC-130 that's overhead, start firing on these points. And then we, we started getting everybody online. We dropped a bunch of bombs, and then we were able to link with the Afghans and then and end up taking the city. But... Yeah, it went from me being like, oh, shit, we're all going to die, to like, wait a minute. Nope, that's not that's not the case. Um, we have a lot of firepower overhead, and we're awesome, so let's go ahead and, and get this under control. So when you're scared for the first time, because you are 16 years into your career, and, and you've been in multiple combat tours, you've been shot, you've been injured, you there's been so much that's happened. What was it about this? And I, I thought it was interesting when I heard you say this before that it was your first time you were scared. What was it about that that was so earth shattering that you were actually scared that time? Well, so I take it. So it's the first time I remember being scared. My team leader, when I got shot in the back, tells a whole different story about how when they rigged me to, for hoist when I was like in that little taco, uh, he said, I said, he's like, no, you reached up, you looked me in the eyes, you were like, sir, you cannot hoist me i will get shot this helicopter's gonna shut down i'm gonna die in the end of a rope i was like hell no. he's like he so he he tells me i was terrified and that was the first time he ever saw me stressed out but i don't remember that so i don't, I don't think that counts. so it didn't but, happen yeah so it didn't happen but uh <laughs> for this time you know i was like man this is my decision my decision to do this mission i picked this hlz you know so it's gonna be me that gets everybody killed that's that's kind of where I was scared. And then at the time, it felt like these dudes were all just shooting me because there were so many rounds hitting the burn. There was so much dirt coming down. I couldn't even, I couldn't see. So, you know, I was like, what the? I was like, man, we're fucked. And then, you know, I just snapped real quick. I was like, all right, no, nah, this is not, this is not it. So yeah, I think it was just the fact that I thought that my decisions were about to get everybody killed was what, what really is set that one off let's talk about your your injury so you take it to the hand uh mm -hmm. that is your firing hand too that's your strong arm right yeah so you've got to switch so walk us through that because you're well, taking like you said multiple rounds and stuff you've got to switch to your other hand walk us through that so a switch and i'm talking to the jtac and i'm just getting pissed because these dudes are lighting us up and and you can tell like when machine when, when these PKM machine guns, they only got a hundred round belt and they got to reload. So you gotta you know you can you can kind of gauge when they're doing that. Like, all right, they're both gonna reload at the same time. So I, I pop up, switch over because we we train shooting offhand, 
And for the first time in my entire career, I have a damn double feed in combat. And so I'm trying to undo this thing, but then I'm just squirting blood into the chamber. I'm like, man, what the? And then I'm like, fuck. And then I have everything set up for a right hand because my compass is on the right side. Uh, that's after that mission, too. I, everything was set to be completely ambidextrous. I was like, I knew that because most of our stuff was set up. I don't know why for that mission I had most, all my, my maps and everything were in my right cargo pocket, you know, my pistols on my right side. Um, yeah, so I just transitioned to the radio, really just making sure I was maneuvering guys. And, and the captain was all the way down in the end. So I was like, hey, sir, I'm just, I'm just going to, you know, use your initials and drop a lot of bombs. Trust, trust me. And uh, really just kind of coordinating versus me trying to, you know, trying to shoot. So really just getting up on the berm, trying to see where we're taking fire from and directing, you know, you know fire in those locations. Uh, his response to you when you tell him, look, I'm going to do something. You back it up. He good with it completely. Yeah, he was good. We, we trained a lot. We would do a lot of things. We're talking about like that whole mental part, right? You know, for the captain, he's usually the guy on the radio calling in strikes and stuff. And, you know, if you're going to be in a leadership position, you want to get on the radio, make things happen. The, the world's falling around apart around you. You still got to get on there and be calm and to hire, make it sound like you're, you're in complete control. So we would get on the treadmill and do all kinds of stuff to where just run through all that verbiage over and over and over again, put yourself in stressful situations and be able to talk calmly. Even, you know, if your heart rates up or, or your world's coming down around you, but because we train like that so often and we, we all knew, that we could all do these things then you know, the, all that trust was there. And that kind of goes like the whole thing with, you know, building trust in teams and whatnot, but our, that trust was there to, to do that. And it, it just wasn't a problem. And then we're like, team like, but while I'm on the radio, we had a whole other element. Like I was having to hold people back. Like guys were like, no, we assault these Jews and do this. Right. Like guys were wanting to do some valor stuff. And they did like, Hey, hold on. Wait for this Apache gun run. Once this Apache gun run starts, then you can conduct your assault. And then, you know, guys, just, there's helmet cam footage of dudes just like, going through intense machine gun fire, you know, to get up to these targets and, and lay waste. And it's, you know, it's pretty badass. Like it's more brave bravery than I've ever personally done. I'm like, damn, you guys are awesome. Excuse me. Those three injuries that you have, those engagements, let's talk about the length of the engagement. How long was each of these happening for everything to occur beginning to end? How long do you think it was? Um, like, so the, 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 the IED, not long. We, we prepped, we left, um, you know, 40 minutes after we started, ID goes off. But those guys were out there forever. You know, the team was, and, you know, however long it took the medevac is getting shot in the back. That was, you know, we came in at 10 o'clock at night the night before, and we were doing things all night long, clearing buildings, setting up our strong points to, the sun came up, I probably got shot about 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. So you're talking about, you know, a good 12 hours there. Uh, in the hand, that was that was quick, but I didn't get medevac. You know, they were trying to medevac me. I'm like, no, like the bird's gonna get shot down. Stop! I just had the, the medic bandaged it up, and we, and we stayed in the fight all day long. So that was a good, you know, twelve to thirteen hour, fourteen hour maybe mission there. And then we when we we finally just pulled everybody out, and that's when I, I got medevac down after that. Um, but those guys, like after I got shot in the back, right? Those guys had a fight for an additional 12, 13, 14 hours, and they all thought they were gonna die because they were surrounded. They do the Mogadishu Mile. Uh, coming out of that place but you know those guys stayed in the fight you know without their team starting uh, surrounded for for a long time with all those which do you believe was your worst injury mm. and i'm you know, talking not just physical chuck mm. i'm talking 
everything, physical, mental. What was your worst injury? To be honest with you, I think the hand was the like affected me mentally more because you know, the shoulder injury, I was back into combat three months. The hand took years, right? It took years. Um, but then thinking again, you know, this, this back surgery I just had was, was because I had a bullet in my back and I ignored it forever. So I mean, that's a tough one. You know, you know for my face, there's a screw up here um, that's loose. So my heart rate, every time I'm running, I can see my heart rate in my left eye and that causes headaches. So and that one caused a lot of brain damage, which I still deal with this today. So that's a hard question. I think all of them affected me in different ways uh, that affected me mentally as well because, you know, with the brain damage stuff, that's, you know, I, I still talk sometimes like I don't have any front teeth. It's really weird. Uh, and I and I, I have memory issues. I don't – facial recognition is really bad for me after getting blown up and a couple other things. So that causes problems with confidence. And, you know, and I, I, you know, I hired a, a – a public speaking coach recently because I do find myself slurring words or, or screwing that up. But then, you know, with the shoulder injury, that, that, that bullet caused me to have all these other surgeries and back issues. And then, you know, that the hand is always painful. And sometimes I, I wake up, if it's cold outside, I can't write properly with my hand. And, and that took me years to recover from. And there's a whole lot of stuff that I can't do because of that. So I don't know. I think it all, you know, it kind of affects that confidence piece mentally to where, you know, you want to be a high performer, but, you know, I know at this point in my career, I just can't. I can't do it anymore. Um, you know, I got to the point where I was ending up in the emergency room once a year trying to put my socks on because of my back. And now I got to have a hip surgery. So I'll be my 31st surgery. And that's directly, you know, related to just stupidity. It's not even related to combat. It just happened to, after, after my back surgery, I was cleaning my roof. And then I decided to fall off of it for some reason. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> I hate when that happens. Um, but yeah, I think that. I don't know if anyone's worse. I, I think the mental aspect is that, you know, you feel like you just can't perform like you want to. And, and that, that was my next question. You being a SAR major, you are at the top. We've talked about being at the top is lonely, but here's where it gets really interesting. You know, you can't perform like you used to. Mm -hmm. You know that you need to, and your brain is at least telling you, you need to be the best of the best of the best. Mm -hmm. So we got to talk about that mental aspect of the job. You're yeah. still doing it. And now you're in charge of training other NCOs to come up mm -hmm. through the ranks. I got to understand how that affects you because it's, that has got to be the worst of all of it. Yeah. I mean that, yeah, that does suck. Right. And especially, you know, the back surgery, I was doing pretty well of, you know, hitting hard training, doing a bunch of tire drags at first, getting to, to running and then the hip, made it to where I couldn't run anymore. And now I'm getting back to where I can do, you know, certain things, but you know, you, you kind of feel like a hypocrite, right? Cause you're expecting, you're holding all these other people to a standard. Um, like, man, I'm an old, I'm only 44 and I can't do all this stuff. And it doesn't, to me, it doesn't matter. Cause I remember like seeing all these dudes that couldn't perform as, you know, when I was growing up, I mean, granted they didn't have like 30 surgeries, but still you always feel like people are looking at you or they expect you to perform. And, it's one of the reasons why, like, you know, the, the command star major path, like, you know, I'm not on it. It's, you know, this year I'll, I'll have my, my college credits taken off my records again, so I'm not at, at risk of, of making that. Um, but if I can't perform, I shouldn't be in that billet anyway, because for us and special forces, if you're in a command star major billet, you're still operational. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's tough. Like, you feel like a failure sometimes, and, you know, but for me, I just got to realize, like, hey, you know, I, I've gone through a lot of stuff and 
you know, I'm not, I'm just not that dude anymore. I'm like, I'm not, I can't deadlift 600 pounds anymore and still run a sub 40 minute five mile and be okay with that. And it does suck. Like, you know, it, you feel like, uh, I don't know, like you're letting dudes down, but guys don't really give a shit to be honest with you. Like, man, you're, you're there, you show up to work, you, you have my back, you know, your, your intentions are great. You, you know, you do all the stuff you're supposed to do and, you know, still going to do PT with them or whatnot. Right. The the thing to me, though, is like you said, that I, I, I almost feel, uh, knowing you from us talking and stuff, that do you almost feel like you have to explain to people why? Yeah, I did for a long time. For, I did for a while. Like, for I me, mean, for a while there, before the back surgery, I just, you know, this might get me in trouble, but I've, I've had all my recent surgeries or uh, the vast majority at the hospital here in Southern Pines, and I've kept those out of my medical records because the reality is that you know, I had my permanent profile deleted a while back so I wouldn't get med boarded out because I should have been med- medically boarded out of the military a long time ago. Um, so I just stopped because it's like, I think most people know, you know, where my injuries are anyway. Um, but yeah, you definitely feel like, hey, let me explain to you why I'm not doing this or why I'm not running with you guys or why I'm not on this airborne operation. And some people do judge you for it. Like, we had this guy, he was like, oh, you know, how come you're on all these airborne operations? And the reality is before I had my, my back surgery, like if I would have if I would have jumped out of a plane, I would have ended up in the emergency room because my back just you know it just it was jacked up. So you know you get to balance it out because some people are going to judge you. There's there's that's just the way they are. I mean, rightfully so. They expect their their leader to to, to perform. I I I think to an extent, yes, you're correct. Uh, I want you to think about this before you answer it. With all of this that's happened, with what we just talked about there, are you ever bitter? No. Never. I, I said think about it for a second. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have to think about that one. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about that then because that seems to me either being jaded or bitter, mm-hmm. that seems that that would be the thing that would come the quickest to most people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Thank so- you. I gave all this to this country to the military. And like you said, if you wouldn't have done certain things with your surgeries, they would have said, well, thanks for your service. Goodbye. Yeah, I think it comes back to like the mission statement we talked to earlier. Like I, I found that, you know, I see a lot of people that have piss poor attitudes and are bitter and become negative about things. And they get stuck in that negative cycle. And I promised myself a long time ago, really after 2012 that I would never get stuck back in that cycle again. And that I wouldn't be that negative dude. Um, you know, with any kind of self pity, and I, and I wouldn't have a have a negative outlook on life because I think that once you get stuck in that, you know, that affects everybody around you. It's it's a cancer. Like if you're negative, that's going to spread to everybody else. So if you can be positive, that's also going to spread to everybody else. But it, that's just healthier for you too. So I've just found that if I find myself going down a path where I'm kind of pissed off, um, even like pissed off at people for for being ridiculous, I just stop. I'm like, no, I'm not going to be that dude. Um, let's not go down that path because it's not going to bring you anything, right? It, it, let me let me reevaluate my actual mission intent, and then you know you're, you can turn my page here. And this, this this book I I look at every morning it has my my core values, um, you know that, that I'm about. And if it doesn't align with that, then you know it's out. So and, and, it's, and one of these core values is um, let me it for you real quick. Shh, shh, shh. 
it's hidden somewhere. Here we go. Um, you're just having a positive attitude. That's, that's number one. My number one core value is positive attitude. And second one is humility, willingness to, to learn. But then being a positive influence and a mentor, right? So those are my top three. But if you get into that bitterness, like I, I fail at that. So for me, if I just look at that and I know that if I start becoming bitter, then I have failed at the core things I'm trying to be about for myself. That, that it does explain it. Let's talk about uh, Talon's Reach Foundation. Now, this is where you've started while you're in the military, but you are moving to doing this full-time once you retire from the military, and you're retiring in 2023. So mm. you've got about a half a year left, a year left, um, and you're going to do this full-time. So let's talk about, first off, the Talon's Reach uh, what they're about. And then I want to talk about the Eagles banquet, um, and things like that. So the Towns Reach Foundation, I'm going to read their, their statement, and then I'm going to have you build from there. The Towns Reach Foundation, they're passionate about serving the special operation forces community. As former operators, we understand the physical and mental demands placed on our nation's elite warriors. Recognize, recognizing that in our commitment to a lifestyle, protecting our country, there are unfortunate tolls taken on the body, mind, and spirit. As warriors, we're often hesitant to seek help as these injuries compound and have a devastating impact on our quality of life. Our foundation's goal is to offer our nation's SOF warriors an opportunity to find sanctuary, mindfulness, and access to the tools and resources necessary to accelerate their path to recovery through our carefully tailored TRF program, nurturing personal growth and self-discovery. I say all that to say this. We see this from outside organizations. Is this happening in the military? Well, this was actually started because of some of the gaps that we have. So it kind of ties into everything that we've talked about so far. It goes back to the bitterness question as well, too. So, you know, the guy that started the foundation, this young Marine, he got hurt in Iraq a couple of years ago. I met him right after his injury, and he was really bitter because he felt like the Marine Corps left him out to dry. Lost, he lost some, some of his, his really good friends. And he was bitter. He was pissed. He wasn't recovering as fast as he wanted to. So he found himself in a very bad mental place. And the resources just simply weren't there to help him. In fact, it was right when COVID hit. So anytime he wanted to talk to a therapist, like, ah, oh, it's got to be over the phone. Nobody can see you. He felt like the Marine Corps just kind of forgot about him, right? Um, so he was like, man, I, I don't like, I don't want this to help or happen to anybody else. So I want to do something. He's like, I got to get out from Andrews. I want to do something that helps other people through these types of things um, without relying on on medicine right so pretty much everything we've talked about is what drove him to to start this thing because he found himself in that position and he was in a really bad mental place and he still struggles you know mentally um you know with a lot of what's going on because he finds himself in that place where he wants to be that guy that can perform but he's got a battery pack installed in his back and his, he's probably going to have another surgery in his leg for his nerves it doesn't work so he wants to be that guy that's you know, he, you know, he had dreams about going to Delta Force from the Marines and all kinds of stuff, you know, because if you want to go to Delta Force, you can go there from other services. But that ended all of his dreams. And he just on top of that, he felt like the Marine Corps kind of shafted him, you know, because it didn't there was nobody there for him. So that's why, you know, he started it. And then I got I came on board uh, late last year. They lost a board member. I've been keeping in contact with this guy for forever. And, and I really believed in, in their mission. Their mission is really just, hey, let's find people that are struggling with everything we talked about here, either 
mentally, physically, or, or morally. Like maybe somebody was put in a situation where they had to do something that they can't morally, you know, you know accept what happened, right? Like maybe, you know, like a cop, like you shoot somebody, it's a, you know, it's, it's justified, but you can't quite, you know, bring yourself to like, man, I just, I shot this dude, man. He's, he's 14 years old, right? Like, but he had a gun and he had his, like, whatever it might be. It's, it's that moral thing where it's not a, a true physical or mental wound, but it's, it's something that you're going to struggle with internally forever. Like how do we, how do we help people do that and use all these techniques that we understand and know that don't rely on medicine. Um, this last event that we were in, we know we took eight, eight special operations guys. We put them on first class, uh, again, first class tickets flew in Montana and we spent a whole week up in the mountains doing, you know, skiing and snowmobiling, which is like, that's kind of the hook, right? But the reality of the professionals there and we went through, you know, here's yoga, here's all these breathing techniques, here's art therapy, here's music therapy, here's all these different things that you can use to get your mind in a state to where it's now healthy and you can get yourself out of that hole and, or you can start to heal or you can actually figure out like, oh, this is a problem. How do I, how do I deal with it? Or, you know, we had one guy that's, he just suffered from really bad anger issues all the time. He's always stuck in that, that, that that sympathetic state to where he's just always like, you know, like how do you, how do you get out of that and not, not go to the alcohol, which is our go-to, right? Cause it's easier or go to the, the drugs. Um, and you know, we're just trying to expand upon that really. So that's, that's kind of how it started because no, because there's that gap in the military that still exists. And unfortunately for the Marines and during COVID, they just, they have a bigger gap than we do in, in army special operations. So I know you said that, you know, it's kind of lacking in the, you know, in the law enforcement world, but we haven't quite got there either yet. So, well, here's, here's my big question about it. This is the thing that really is, um, kind of, uh, let me, let me think how I want to say it. When you talk about that, you take a holistic approach to it. Non-traditional methods of healing. You take these guys skiing, whatever it may be, right? <clears throat> That's a hard sell especially the guys that are in the special operations community, Marine Raiders, Delta guys, all this kind of stuff. You want to make it, I guess the word would be manly enough for them. Um, how do you go about making them understand that it's pretty manly to get yourself together and be the man that you can be like, be the best man that you can be, but it's a hard sell. So sell us on it. So to, to be honest, this is what surprised me. We talk about, you know, people get out six months to a year. It's when a lot of, you know, people die and they're outside the community. But once we got these guys together in that group of eight, the very first night, it was unbelievable. It's all of a sudden it's like now that they're back in this community, they're, they're brothers again, people just opened up. I mean, dudes are getting emotional right off the bat about things and, and just opening up about things that these guys said they hadn't talked about to anybody else, like ever. Um, so I wouldn't say it was almost like making it manly. It was making it acceptable. And it was almost like an instant light switch. You're like, hey, guys, we're all here. You know, this is my story. This is the, the founder story. This is my story real quick. We've all been through these things. But we're all here as a community right now. And, you know, we're going to go through this week. We're going to do things that you might think is seemingly weird. Um, but it was almost instantly right away. It wasn't It wasn't making it. It wasn't like making it mainly. It was like just acceptable all of a sudden, right? It was like an acceptable thing to be open and honest and be vulnerable and not think that that stuff was just dumb. Like even the art therapy, like you know, I thought I was like, man, this is gonna be real stupid. But then like guys were just into this, th like because I'd never seen it before, and it was a way for guys to just to to put their mind to something. And guys were just like, 
like into it. And it was awesome. Like, man, this is, this is wild. And then, you know, Nick Jones, the founder, he gave his whole story about how he went through art therapy when he was going through Walter Reed and he had these dark photos and they're all red. And he was like, I finally realized that this tree I was drawing was this tree where this guy died. And then you could see the transition over the course of a couple months to where it became much lighter. And then you had a picture that was blue on one side, red on the other. And then all of a sudden it was, it was these, you know, emotions that were pretty positive in nature. And it was, it was just crazy. So you know, we talk about making it, it manly to, to, to do these things. And, you know, I think that, that, that manliness is just, it's acceptable. Right. And then when you're accepting it and everybody else is like, yeah, and you got a group of your peers that are like, yep, Hey man, we can be open and that's not stupid. Like it's not, I'm not a lesser man for telling this person across from me, like, Hey, I've got these problems. This is what I'm going through. Can you just listen to me for 30, 40 minutes and then, or however long. Right. And the guy's like, yeah, he's like, holy shit. Let's talk about the Eagles banquet in itself. We've talked a little bit about when you flew them out there and stuff, but let's talk about the Eagles banquet uh, and everything that goes on with that. Yeah. So this is surprising, right? So it's just, it's really four Marines and me, right? Like we're not, we've never done a board. Like we don't, we're just trying to figure stuff out. We're all on the board of directors and, you know, we don't really even have an executive director. So we're planning all this out and we're like, man, like how are we going to pull this off? And it ended up being amazing, right? Brought all these donors. We we're like, how are we going to fill these seats? We were stressing out. We ended up getting about 120 people there. We threw this Eagles banquet. We showed a video that we had this awesome videographer come out from from Black Rifle Coffee. Uh, a guy named Dustin Jones. He made his badass video. Uh, I emceed the night, which I was like, man, I'm going to probably screw this up. I've never emceed an event this big before. But you know, we pulled this thing off. Um, we ended up making like $30,000, $40,000 that night off auction items. I brought a flag that I flew in Syria. We had knives and all kinds of stuff there that we – we auctioned off these and everybody was just super into it and it was awesome. So it was a celebration of what we just accomplished, but also, you know, the fact that we were able to raise a bunch of money through items that were donated to us through all these different entities. And, and all that money is going to go back to, we're going to run another program at the end of this year. Um, and we were able to buy some property, we bought some, not property, but we bought a trailer now because we didn't have anything. We we're just stuffing everything in the back of rental cars, um, you know, that we can do. And, I just thought it was amazing. I just, I just recently came on, but the four Marines, four young Marines that just were able to figure this out and actually they said, Hey, this is what we're going to do. You know, I started this a year ago and we're going to do it on this date. And they actually executed it. They did exactly what they said they were going to do. And, you know, they were able to raise enough money for it. And now we have enough money right now to do the second one. You know, I think that that's pretty awesome. And, you know, we still talk to all these guys that we brought there. We straight a little community. We were just chatting with them today. Um, helping some guys see some things and, and doing some follow-ups and and those guys are you know just super appreciative and and it's just awesome and now they have a community again of those guys because some of those guys you know once once you get out maybe you don't talk to your your old friends but now these guys have this community of people to talk to as well uh, and that's what we're going to continue to try to do and build that community even bigger and just give these guys that 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 resource to use most fulfilling story from all this Man, the most fulfilling one, I'll be honest, I don't even know if it's fulfilling, but let me give you an example that surprised me. So we're interviewing these guys before we did the event. The fact that a lot of these guys got emotional during the interview, right? Because they hadn't talked about this stuff to anybody. And then when we get out there, a guy named a guy named Gary, he's from 3rd Special Forces Group. This guy actually talked me into getting my lower back surgery. He's like, just get it. It's going to change your life. This guy's a real angry guy. And at the end... 
one of the guys I used to used to work for me called me. He's like, "Hey, I'm really good friends with Gary. I'm just telling you, man, this guy really enjoyed it. You know, it, it did a lot for him. Um, you know, he's he's an angry guy. This guy was making brooms one day. We had a guy up there like showing people how to make brooms. It's super aggravating. He's like, ah, oh, so pissed off making this broom. He's like, I got so mad. I went outside, and then I realized I was just standing outside for ten minutes with no shoes on in the snow, and that was stupid. So then I came back in, and I was like, I just built this broom." And then he's like, you know what? But they're really talking. He's like, if I'm getting this mad about making a stupid broom, he's like, man, how am I acting at my house with my family? Like, what's really setting me off like that? And he kind of had this epiphany to where he was like, man, I got, I got to work on this, and it's got to be okay for me to work on it, and I can't just go to the alcohol and 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 use an excuse. And, and another guy said the same thing from the broom too. He's like, yeah, it's like it just, it just made me realize that I can't let these kind of things upset me, and I can't go to be that that pessimistic, you know. Um, better dude about things so that, was, that was just cool that they took these small things throughout it and they just had these epiphanies and they're like man like you know you realize it about yourself uh, so that was that was pretty fulfilling but overall the whole thing just you know seeing these guys pull this off was i don't know it was just amazing like just the, the way the banquet went off and you know the amount of people that were willing to support it and how i don't know just the amount of people that are that excited that we don't even know, you wouldn't know them personally to, 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 to donate and do something for something that's about, you know, something that's selfless. It's not about them. It's about, you know, helping other people. I think that's, that's just pretty awesome. That's, that's, that just gives me a, I don't know, hope in humanity, I guess. Well, let's talk about how people can donate. Uh, TalonsReachFoundation.org. Tell them about what the donations go to, how they can donate, and what it's going to mean for next year's group of people that come in. Yeah, so you go to the website. You can donate um, right from there. We're, we're about to try to start a store and stuff, so if you want to buy shirts and what, but you, you can donate. You know, if, if you want to donate bigger donors, there's, there's instructions on there. You know, a certain donation will pay for a trip for a person and we're really trying to make it for our nine nineties to where all the money that we spend is not for anything. Like, you know, we're not flying out first class or doing anything like that. Like we're all taking the cheap seats. And eventually what we'd like to work up to is, is running 68 programs a year, you know, our own piece of property to where we can keep doing this over and over again. And we got a paid executive director. Um, you know, this year we raised about a hundred thousand dollars. We're trying to get, you know, twice as much next year and keep raising these, but, People can donate, or they can donate their time. We're always looking for volunteers. Uh, you can go online and fill out a volunteer applicant. We're, we're pretty strict on how we go through this, and, and we you know talk to you. And if, if we're going to bring Eagles in to do these things, we're going to have those guys vetted by the SOCOM Care Coalition. Um, and we just want to make sure that people understand, if you donate the money, you're going to see exactly where it's going to go to, and it's all going to go towards bringing people out and, and giving them these services towards whether it's supplies for that or you know, the food, we're not hiring cooks and stuff out there. We, we buy all the food and then we're out there cooking, you know, we're out there cooking breakfast, um, lunch and dinner or people come and volunteer their time for that. But, you know, we're trying to make it to where every, we're not that nonprofit is trying to have jets and all kinds of other stuff, right? It's just all going towards what it's supposed to go to. Um, and any kind, any little amount helps. Like we had a guy donate 27 bucks. Like that's awesome. Like every little bit that we can get and we're not trying to be that big, Nonprofit that's just that you look at some of these 990s online. Some of them are paying like wow, they're paying this executive director $700,000 a year, but they're really only giving $200,000 in scholarships. But they're making you know a million dollars here and there. It's like it's kind of criminal. 
uh, I didn't realize all that. Once I started looking at nonprofit nine nine, I was like, "Holy crap! Like, how are some of these places like even doing what they're doing?" I don't know if you've seen them, but it's don't go like once you start going that rabbit hole, it starts pissing you off. You're like, "What the hell?" Well, I like their goal. They say that uh, their goal is for each eagle to find solace during our program and know that they are not alone in their healing. And I think that's the big thing: is people think they're alone. You've mentioned it yourself when you were in that hole and just could not figure out how to get out of it. People yeah. need to understand that there's, they're not alone. If you're feeling something, reach out to somebody. There is a ton of organizations. There's a ton of people that will just take a phone call and talk to them. If you're feeling bad, Chuck, I think you can uh, agree to that, that people, just a simple phone call would change a lot of people's out, outlook. Sometimes just having a, a conversation with somebody that's going to shut up and listen to you is like game changer. It's a life changer, right? I've, I've learned that. I like to like. Sometimes people just need to be listened to, right? And that that's all they need. And all of a sudden, even they didn't realize it, and then they just feel better. So it's it's crazy. Like most of the time, people don't even realize that that's what they need. And then you know they'll vent or they'll talk about something. They'll come to a self realization themselves just through talking through it. And then that's really all they needed. But they, but again, we're all hard headed especially in our line of work where, you know, we think we're awesome and, you know, we try to stay humble, but that gets around like that, that the ego gets on all of our way all the time. We're like, oh, I don't need that. Or that's, that's weak. And it's not, it's not weak. You know, it's not non manly to go seek help or, you know, stupid. It's, that's actually what you need to do not just for yourself, but all those around you, you know, can we take a little time and talk about Lycos group LLC? Sure. That's a, it's a recent endeavor. You know, I'm, I'm involved with it. A couple of civilian companies, but uh, I have a friend that I've been talking to since well, I met him in 2014. He's a an author, wrote a book called Leadership and Balance, and he's got his own consulting company. He's part of Wexford Group when he got out, and uh, I went on a couple of jobs with him, and I realized that I really enjoyed leadership consulting and the amount of money companies are willing to pay for stuff that we take for granted in, in our lines of work is is ridiculous. And I thought we we're going to go into these companies and teach them all this pretty high level stuff but the reality is they're looking for all this stuff that's you know pretty what i consider like basic level stuff but it's stuff that we take for granted at least in the military um but again it goes along with being able to influence other in a positive manner i remember i did a job with a hibbit city gear not too long ago and one of the regional managers or one of the district managers sat down and was like hey like how do you how do you organize your week and i said i was like well check it out he's like you know every day i get up i do 10 minutes of mission analysis in the morning i i review you know what my what my core uh, priorities are not just for me but also for work and i balance everything off that and if it doesn't fall into that i put it at the bottom priority list i prioritize everything, prioritize everything for the week and the day and then i ran over my like my email algorithm everything real quick and he was just like mind-blowing like holy crap he's like that's amazing you gotta come and tell everybody else that but to me it was like simple silly that's, that's basic stuff that i've been you know before you before you action something analyze what it is that you need to do first you know, come up with a commander's intent. Like, okay, I understand this is what needs to happen. Um, but before you do that commander's intent, before you create that, like do that mission analysis, figure out what it is you're getting yourself into first, and then come up with your plan of action and then action instead of just, you know, actioning stuff. And it was just like mind blowing. And that's like, but it's, that's fulfilling, right? It's, that's like, to me, it's the work at the top of Maslow's hierarchy again. Like I don't, I don't care if the company really makes millions of dollars, but as long as, you know, you can have that positive impact on people. That's just, that's fulfilling to me. That's, it's awesome. And it's basically getting paid 
more money than I'm going to pay from the military for doing the same thing. Right. Yes. So is this what you'll be doing full time after retirement? Uh, yeah, probably. Um, you know, I got a couple of business partners that, that they're doing their day job right now too. We're all kind of retiring at the same time. So, you know, with the company, I mean, this year it'll probably make, you know, about 30 some thousand dollars for the company itself with not even really marketing it, just, just doing things on the side. But, you know, when it's time to get out and go full, full board, I mean, my buddy, I work with a lot. He's, he's doing close to a million dollars a year right now. And, you know, he's just doing something he loves doing. It's, it's fulfilling. And, and he brings me a lot of his jobs. And then we got a couple of people like the, the CEO of, of Hibbit Sports, or Hibbit City, City, Hibbit, Hibbit City Gear is a friend of mine. He's going to, you know, give up that mantle at a certain, certain point and go back to his consulting company as a side job. And all of us are, you know, this little syndicate where we're just going to bring each other in and, and, and do things not, not because we're trying to make money out of it, but because it's, it's just enjoyable. It's enjoyable to go. And, you know, I'm going to go to Linux corporation here pretty soon. Uh, went there a couple weeks ago and just, you know, talking to their managers and having them feel like their bosses care enough to bring somebody else in to care about them. That, that's a game changer to them. And they're like, Oh wow. Like the management actually cares about us enough to break these guys in who are just going to come down the line, and just talk to us for an hour and figure out what our problems are. And again, it goes, it kind of, kind of goes with the concept of, Sometimes people just need to be listened to and heard. Like that's it's the same concept. Just going out and talking to people and figuring out, like letting them vent, figuring out what the problem is. Well, when you talk about Hibbit, that brings us right into our next uh, thing is the Pineland Underground podcast, the premier podcast from the U.S. Army John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School. This yeah. is something that you host. You've actually had those guys on there. I know that you filmed mm. there at one point. Um, yeah. Let's talk about this podcast, though. It's not your normal special forces podcast. It's not a lot about combat stories. It, it has them in there, but you're talking about life lessons and uh, building up, kind of being a better you. So let's talk about the podcast because I think that people will go into it thinking one thing, but I want them to know what they're really getting involved in. Yes, I mean, so the podcast is relatively new. I mean, in December we only had like 700 downloads. You know, we're, we're now. You know, in the short amount of time, we're up to like 14,000 downloads because we kind of revamped it. We wanted to make it about more than just talking about the war stories, your, your typical special operations stuff. So we're trying to bring in like we had Ken Togo, retired general, coming in and talking about Ukraine. That's that We talked to him right before Ukraine kicked off, and then we released it. his episode right after it kicked off. But it's very relevant because he's talking about that strategic lens. And, and I went back and re-listened to it the other day, and I learned some more stuff. And I was the one hosting it, right? Um, but then, you know, we always had one with my operations sergeant, you know, Chad Brack, and he's talking about grammar and his four degrees. And then he's had telling funny stories about how he thought he killed bin Laden once. Um, so we're going to, you know, and he's got life lessons in there about, you know, just things that he learned and, and how to give back to the community. And we talk, we try to, we're going to try to, we're definitely going to hit on more on mental health, but we try to hit on that, um, as much as we can when we're not on certain areas. We did one on Robin Sage recently because the news was trying to say that Robin Sage was us trying to take over North Carolina, kind of like with Jade Helm when they thought we were taking over Texas. But really, Robin Sage is just an exercise we do in North Carolina multiple times a year for the past 30 years. Um, but, yeah, really trying to get delve more into bringing in, you know, really interesting people like James Kerr, who wrote the book called Legacy, talking about you know, the importance of organizational culture and how you can make those positive impacts in an organization 
you know, just trying to find people from all over, not just even in the military, like first responders, because the mentality behind what we do is relatively the same. So let's talk about that. Like how did, how do people deal with their stressors in life? And, and, and you know, we're talking to the CEO of Hibbit City Gear, right? So like, well, what does that have to do with the military? Well, he was a West Pointer, but we're talking about what leaderships or what leadership principles that he find transferred over to, you know, being a CEO now, you know, and vice versa. And, and what can you use in, in just in life in general? Yeah. Some of the topics that you've had are uh, driving innovation, uh, the next generation of SOF leaders, countering misinformation and disinformation, defending America. There's so many things that I don't think people going into it, they would look at it and go, oh, it's special forces, it's special forces. Mm -hmm. Guys are just going to talk about combat. But you really show how the combat, the mindset kind of comes back into the civilian world. So Mm -hmm. don't think that it's just something that you need to listen to for combat stories. There's a lot to learn from this. Uh, You're actually on there talking about a lot of your recovery and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Um, so people should definitely check it out. This is something that will continue even after you get out of the military, correct? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to, well, I plan, so I, I like us group by its, all its own podcast gear. So, you know, I'll take after you. And when I get out, I know this is like one of your side gigs too, cause you know, you're, you know, you're still a full-time, you know, law enforcement officer, but I'll probably do the same thing or it'll still be a side thing, but it'll be more on, you know, I always want to talk about mental health, obviously, because one part of talent reach, but, you know, more of those, those leadership principles too. like, what are those things that are enduring no matter what you're doing that that can affect anything you do and whether it's how to build effective teams or how to deal with stress or how to inspire people, you know, et cetera, et cetera. To, let's just talk about, let's talk about, let's talk about, you know, have, let's have DJ Kelly on the, on the podcast and talk about you know, what are some of his life lessons that he's learned, you know, through a lifetime of service. Uh, as a first responder or something like that, because I found that especially recently I've taken a lot of time to where I've, I've just called a lot of people. I'm like, hey, let's talk for now. You give me all your thoughts on leadership. And I've got a whole, well, I've got three whole notebooks sitting in there. I got to transcribe them. And what I found is, you know, I was talking to civilians, I was talking to law enforcement guys, people in the military from all different services. They all said the exact same things from, and I'm talking like some people were at strategic level. They also like, they said them in different ways, but it was all like the same principles. I thought that was like, super cool um so yeah let's talk about this like what can you apply like just not just from the military what can you apply in law enforcement as a firefighter just if you're at home as a mom right some of those things can be applicable you're raising a son that's leadership absolutely single mothers single fathers uh yeah absolutely uh and and like i said it's a fantastic podcast um you host it with another major correct bobby that's why so the one you heard where i'm talking about my recovery that's the one where i decided like hey i gotta come on this podcast because right now it's one officer you know and he's he's just trying to like you know he's like shit you get an officer and he's trying to toe the line i'm like no let's bring it in i'm gonna try to get your ass fired every podcast like that's like that's that's the goal is every time we drop a podcast you should be in fear of your career so it's not a narrative. It's not political. We just talk about whatever. I mean, that was the last one we dropped. I don't know if you listened to it. I mean, the guy is talking about buttholes at one point, right? Like, oh, how, is the commanding general going to be mad about that? Like, no, because this is real, right? Yeah. And I think it needs to happen a lot more because I think it breaks that stigma. It lets people know more than anything that you're human. And yeah. I think that's a lot of the thing that we have gotten away from. First responder, law enforcement, military is – these people think, uh, or people in general, the the public thinks that it's robots that that mm-hmm. they're inhuman that they do. 
they make mistakes just like everyone else does. They, yeah. they are sad like everyone. They're happy like everyone. And I think that in these jobs, we need to humanize them a lot more and let them know that these are actual people doing these jobs. They have families right? to take care of. And they're affected by all kinds of things. Like absolutely job. Like, and when you do something stressful at work, like it's going to affect you and you're going to probably take that home. And you know, how do you deal with that? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now I want to talk about something that, that really affected me that I saw of you that made me put you on a little higher level. Uh, I want to talk about the snail pup yeah, where you're sitting right now. Yes. The Falcon snail this pup thing is unbelievable. You've yeah. got to explain what you did that to your house, you turned the basement into an actual pub. Yeah. So started with buying this 19, this house built in 1928. It's one of the first four houses here. And this thing was, people hadn't taken care of this thing in 30 years. And this, the whole downstairs was, I, I, I just thought these people love power outlets, but I was explaining that like, no, those were for grow lights. This, this place grew a lot of weed at one point. That's so it was like real seventies. There was like a jacuzzi in here. It was nasty. So I came back from Syria and just tore out the whole basement of this pub or the whole basement. And I used to do tile and concrete. So I laid in, you know, some wood looking tile. We just built this really badass pub. But really one of the, one of the reasons why I built it is because I was doing a lot of mentorship on the weekends and stuff with captains and whatnot. This gives a perfect venue for that to have people over. And, you know, on a lot of Saturdays that people would be sitting here, we'll just have a discussion about work or, you know, training management or, you know, how to get over like with new officers and whatnot. That's, that's been pretty cool. Uh, and also we do the podcast down here sometimes. So that's, that's pretty awesome as well. Um, but yeah, so it's turned into a venue where we have Oktoberfests and uh, it's for people too. Like if people are having a rough time, like friends, they know that they're coming home and they want to decompress. They can, they can come in here and they can have a drink before they go somewhere. They want to come here. They need a place to stay. There's two places to, to sleep right here and I can lock it off from the rest of the house. They can come in here and they can, they can hang out and they can chill or, you know, just get away or people want to use it for events. They can come here. Like we had a couple of retirement parties here. Why not? People can just use it for, you know, public good. No, I had the cops call me recently because one of my friends put it on Google. So it looked like an actual pub. There's reviews and some of the reviews like, oh, yeah, it's great. The owner kind of gets handy with the ladies. So I got a call from one of my buddies down the street. He's like, hey, man, the police chief called me and he's looking to your pub. I'm like, what'd you tell him? He's like, I just like, he's like, no, he's like, it's just a man cave. So a cop came and he's like, looking around. He's like, obviously you're not selling alcohol out of here. It's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> so I was like, why is the police chief involved? Like somebody got all like ramped up. Yeah, but now they're all cool. In fact, I'm gonna have the, I think we're gonna have the police chief over here a couple weeks, and you know, he can be at the Falcon Snail Pub, and we can know him. Well, so uh, actually, guys, uh, pictures of the Snail Pub. Uh, will actually be in here. The 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 um, I'll actually put pictures if you don't mind in your yeah. in your episode page so people can understand that it is an actual pub. Yeah, and it, it looks is, like a, a, nice, a nice Irish pub. It's always playing like absolutely Irish. It's Irish folk music that plays when you're down here at the pub. It's got a, a cool courtyard with you know it's 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 kind of walled off so you can go out there and smoke cigars and hang out. It, and, it's absolutely fantastic. Chuck, this has been amazing. Let's go over a couple of things just so people can figure out where they can uh, reach out to you, learn about you, any social media that you want to push out there. And then let's once again, give out Talon's reach. I'll get to that. Once you talk about your social media, how people can reach out to you, uh, meet you or look to some of the things that you're doing. Yeah. So, I mean, Instagram is Charles.P.Ritter. 
um, out there. If people want to email me, it's, it's charles.ritter at, at gmail.com. You know, feel free to, to reach out. Um, if you have any questions, uh, you want to come to the Falcon Snail Pub, you know, you can reach out and you can come down here and, and come visit. You know, I, I've, I've stopped really accepting invitations on Facebook because there's a lot of weirdos on there. But, uh, you know, I've got a LinkedIn, same thing, Charles Ritter. Um, but, yeah, feel free to reach out and, you know, we have a chat. You want to come on the podcast? You got something cool to talk about? Come on the podcast. Um, you know, let's have some discussion. We, we put it on some of the, probably the recent podcasts. Like, hey, guys, if, if, if anybody disagrees with what we're talking about, too, like, you know, let, let's have a discussion. Like, let's, let's talk about that. Because, like you said, we're all human, but we can always be wrong, too, about things. And, and I think one of the things we're losing in society today is the ability to have uh, healthy debates with people with, with topics you disagree on. Like, you don't have to agree with somebody. Like, I mean, you could sit there and we can disagree on a subject. But still respect each other's opinions at the end of the day. I think that absolutely we're kind of losing that. It's just it's all or nothing. Um, oh, I don't like it, so I'm going to cancel. Like, no, let's let's have these healthy debates and and talk and argue with somebody. And then they're like, hey, man, I don't, I don't agree with your point of view, but I respect it, and, and, and let's move on. Or sometimes maybe you got to be willing to change your point of view too, right? So if somebody can convince me that my point of view is wrong, I'm like, hell, I can be wrong. Yeah. Well. Uh, this has been an amazing conversation, um, and I'm so happy that you came on here and did this. Let's go over a couple of the things where we can find Charles. You got the Pineland Underground podcast. You can find that on any of the places that you find your podcasts at. You can help out by donating or being a part of the Talons Reach Foundation at talonsreachfoundation.org. You can find him on Instagram. You can find him on LinkedIn. He thinks there's widows, so don't try and find him on Facebook. We'll be able to put his email address and everything on his actual episode page on the website. Speaking of the website, it's up and running and it is alive now. It's dtdpodcast.net. When you go there, you'll see pictures from the show, pictures about each person that we talk to. You'll find any way that you can be in contact with them or help donate to their foundations. And it covers a litany of things on the website itself. So once again, dtdpodcast.net. You can also find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form at the DTD podcast. Make sure you go check us out, leave a comment, tell us how good we're doing, how bad we're doing. Let us know. Also, go check out our sponsor, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. Remember, whenever you buy from them, they donate to families of fallen officers. That's all. Go check them out at policecoffee.com. I'll say it again, policecoffee.com. Go check them out. More to come from them. We just built a partnership together, so there'll be a lot more that we're talking about with them. But if you want to find them, once again, policecoffee.com. Guys, thank you so much for coming by the show. Chuck, thank you so much for giving your story. It's an amazing story, and I hope more people will learn about it. I hope they'll go and help out this donation to the organization that you're working with. Guys, that's going to be it for this week. That's Chuck. I'm DJ. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later. Thank you.